I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Welcome to Film Fight Club, the show where we don't talk about film, we fight about film. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writing critic Virat Nehru. I am back! Yes, you are. Now, we're going to be talking about Stephen King's It later in the program, the new adaptation. But before we do, um, we need to note that we're not in our traditional venue. We're not at the 2SL Studios. We've gone out on location. Guys, where are we? Well, we're at the Factory Theatre because the Sydney Underground Film Festival has just wrapped up and we were subjected to the closing night film, Kuso, directed by Flying Lotus. Yeah, look, you don't so much watch this movie as experience it. You're gonna, everyone has, will have a lot of very strong opinions. It's pretty graphic as far as graphic goes, even for this festival. But for the moment, the Sydney Underground Film Festival is one of the best festivals of the year. They have gone all out. It has been a fantastic four days at the Factory Theatre. I have been here the entire time. My mind has been expanded and blown and warped and every sort of crazy film from the quirky art house and independent pictures to the quite incisive documentaries to some quite incredible shorts. Um, this really has a pretty broad span for a four day festival. I'd just like to point out, Glenn is a huge fan of the festival. As you can see, if you were here in front of me, Glenn is wearing the Sydney Underground Film Festival t-shirt. It's pretty great. It's been pretty fun. Have you guys enjoyed yourselves? Yeah, yeah. Everything I've seen has been pretty good. I, I find it to be a strange festival. Um, it wallows in trash. It embraces its trashy side. But it, then it shows you something that's all about like dignity, like Dawson City, Frozen Time. This festival has many faces. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to talk about festivals when you talk about, you know, the inherent culture that festivals bring. So the Sydney Film Festival crowd is completely different to the Melbourne Film Festival crowd. And the same way, you know, South has its own crowd. We know the kind of people who come to watch these films do want their minds to be expanded, blown, experienced. So you've got to feel trashiness is somehow cherished. It is really is quite nice because I see people at this festival who I don't see any other festival throughout the year and there's always new people, always meet new people who are seeking out these films that you really just don't get anywhere else. And you do get the trashy stuff, which is fun trashy, but you also get the real the stuff like Dawson City Frozen and Time, which again, you will not see anywhere, mm. which has an incredible aesthetic to it, which is so sad because when it comes to not just film, but filmmaking itself. This is a film about the Yukon in the early part of the 20th century, where they unearthed literally thousands of hours of old films, silent films we thought had been lost to time. And they are documented in the same vein that they document the city itself. And so much history has come out of the city. So many monumental figures in U.S. history. U.S. history, world history, will be not different not for things that happened in the city. And seeing the documented the two hours was really quite interesting. Yeah, I think what was great about this film is it shows how history comes together in strange and unexpected ways. A lot of the things happen that have a big effect on later generations, not because they were intended, but because of the convergence of the right or wrong events at, at exactly the right time. It's also got a lot to offer for fans of cinema because this film really wallows in the beauty of cinema and witnessing artwork made in another time. If anything, I think the film is a little bit too heavy-handed in the way that it wants us to indulge in this aesthetic experience. Sometimes the music is a little bit over the top and the point in, is a little bit overextended with one too many montages of the rediscovered film reels, but it's still it's a really rewarding, really interesting cinematic experience. 
talking about the film being very heavy-handed and how it talks about it, it was really interesting comparing this to the sort of plethora of political films that have come out in 2017. And a comparison piece would be I'm Not Your Negro, which is really interesting to talk about that. So how are we using footage, using time periods, to making political statements through that? I'm Not Your Negro is in cinemas now, or shortly, isn't it, yeah, Bharat? Right. Yes, right that now. is true. It is uh, in cinemas now. And if you haven't seen it, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Go and see it, please. We all liked I Am Not Your Negro, so that's a Film Fight Club recommendation. What else have we enjoyed at the festival this year? We've enjoyed another one which is about capitalism in a very different vein, Drib, which we caught today. How can we even begin to explain Drib? It's not a conventional film in any sense. Yeah, Drib is reenactments of events that ostensibly actually happened, seem to have actually happened if you look into the film and, and the events on Google. Probably did, might not have. It's in that kind of is this real or not territory of exit through the gift shop. I found this to be really funny. It's about a guy who's famous for getting into fights on YouTube, who's hired to be the face of an energy drink company. It's basically a satire of Los Angeles and late capitalism featuring a kind of hapless... Yeah, uh, he's a YouTube star ostensibly that uh, is taken by these people to a full advantage of to sell their drink. And I think it's an engaging premise, but would largely be uninteresting if not for the way the filmmaker dealt with it. Because you have several layers. You have the reenactment, you have the interview, you have the footage of them filming the reenactments. And then you have what seems to be a post-event interview between the filmmaker and its main subject. And what was most interesting, at least in how it's depicted, in that the subject of the film insisted that he play himself, if that's to be believed. Uh, in that sense, it actually reminded me of uh, The Square and the satirical tone and the way you talk about the art world and in, essentially the subject and the object. And I love in Drib how it is basically taking our obsession of presentation and how we like to be presented and seen by the rest of the world, but commercializing it, which has become a very big commodification issue in contemporary society. The director, Christopher Bogley, has directed did some of my favorite music videos of the past few years. This material could have really just coasted back on the docudrama style, but instead the style is really engaging. It's beautifully shot, but also shot in a way that always reinforces the humor. I find there's some incredibly funny editing that just brings the joke to the surface in such a great way. It's a very, very funny film in my opinion, and yeah, that's another strong recommendation. Visual storytelling and the visual art of setting up a joke is being lost. I think too many jokes yeah. are told through dialogue and not through visual storytelling. So This is one film yeah. we, we would encourage for you to seek out. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of uh, visual storytelling, engage people in a very different way, what opened the festival and what had another segment throughout is the Found Footage Festival Live. It's their first appearance in Australia, Joe Pickett and Nick Pruer. They, their job, their life is literally to go around to thrift stores and video stores and find old things that you can't find on YouTube that aren't on the internet, footage from the 70s, 80s you thought were lost history that you cannot believe actually exists, real stuff, not parody, not fake, and they find of all those thousands of hours, the very best of it, and for the first time in Australia, have shown it to us. It's kind of like Mystery Science Theater 3000, because in a lot of ways, what you what they do in their show is stuff you could just watch on YouTube if they'd assembled it that way. But instead, they're taking pleasure in showing you the stuff that they've assembled and that, you know, pausing the film and interacting with the audience, making commentary. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's in some ways depressing, but in a very funny way. You see a lot of sides of human nature that maybe you weren't prepared for. I found the subtext of this whole thing for me was about the many ways that um, technology has opened up pathways of communication for sad people 
to express their their weird side. And what better place than Sydney Underground Film Festival to look at that kind of thing? Well, not just sad people. It's like this, we saw some of the best and worst that public TV and commercial yeah. commercials have to offer. Yeah, what's remarkable about found footage is that we're finding stuff here that people never thought would see the light of day that before the internet age. And it's as if it was made very much for them. We saw something, uh, what was it, Cybersex for the internet. Oh, yeah. How, how did, before, yeah, how did, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was very clearly early 90s and, and yeah. vividly so hilarious mix of 90s infomercial family friendly aesthetics and soft core porn <laughs> yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of pretty crazy things like i'd encourage you to seek them out um, it is the first time in australia but hopefully from their tour here they'll have some australian footage we might even see when they get back here uh, some stuff from our own vaults of of the abc and sbs on the subject of uncovering strange things lost to time, we saw a very weird movie called Where is Rocky 2? Uh, this is a documentary about um, trying to track down an, a rock that was made in the desert by an American artist in the 70s, which was named Rocky II. Um, it's directed by Pierre Bismuth, who is a sometimes collaborator with Michel Gondry, who worked on the story for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And this is a really, really strange movie. Um, I think it's, it's basically a parody of documentaries. For the, for the first hour of the film, it follows a private investigator as he just talks to people who lead him to talk to other people. And there's endless shots of planes coming and going as he just travels around, set to overdramatic music. Basically, nothing happens for the majority of this film. Um, and, and it's all about making fun of the way that facts are presented to us in a documentary format. It later on intersects with this meta angle with actors trying to create a more interesting version of the story than the one that you're seeing in the documentary. And uh, I think it has some pretty funny comments on the way that narrative and documentary are put together and the ways that they're different and the ways that they can both be very bad. Yeah, it really speaks to the experimental edge of this festival. I mean, the last and first and last sequences where it's just, wow, what are we watching? It feels like <laughs> something out of drib. Like the guys yeah. who got this would put this together. I feel the people who watched Frontline back and made Frontline back in the day would see something like this and think, wow, the spirit really yeah. lives on. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's really interesting to, to think about what kind of movies have been rare itself? I mean, we talk about the trashiness and wallowing in trashiness and the gore, but I think this stuff, or stuff in general, is moving towards embracing this counterculture vibe, which it was meant to be in the first place. And really, the movies that have really stood out have been the ones that are commenting on this very contemporary, ironic sensibility that we seem to be embracing in our world. Okay, yeah. David Foster Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you were here, you were here for, uh, paraphrase David Foster Wallace many no, times no, in the, to the future. No, but, but, speaking of no, where, agree, agree. <laughs> but speaking of where we have got as a society, um, one of the films that really did it for me at the sense, and, and it's played at a few festivals now, and the trailer has just been released, Tragedy Girls. Hashtag, I should say hashtag Tragedy Girls. I know. I mean, uh, we are a social media generation. Uh, I think Trashy Girls was so much fun. And I think I haven't had old school fun in a movie in a long time. I think I've just forgotten how to have fun at movies. And this is really sad because I think that was my first love of cinema was to go and have fun at a movie rather than trying to tear it apart, critique it. So Trashy Girls just reminded me what is fun about movies. And it's really that kind of film. As we should clarify, this is a basically Ingrid Goes West meets every funny slash horror comedy you've ever met. It's, you know, set in the Midwest, a bunch of teenagers. It's ostensibly a horror film, but it's very much about so it's a social media satire at the same time. It's basically how social media turns you into psychopaths. 
Pretty much. Brianna Hildebrand, who plays the role, who's the central role, who's also in Deadpool, is absolutely hilarious. Both of the main leads are, and it has quite an interesting cast. Craig Robinson pops up, Josh Hutchinson from The Hunger Games, and they're all quite quirky. I think they're, it's very evident they're having quite a bit of funny with the material, and there's one particular scene with Josh Hutchinson where, throughout the film, they're trying to go for it once a subversive, macabre, and very strong satirical edge, and this scene uh, involving a motorcycle, I think it's where they really hit it on the head. I mean, it's trying to subvert all those tropes about teen movies. And that's what's really funny about it, where it's basically trying to subvert the rom-com tropes, trying to subvert the high school musical tropes about friendship, true love, and finding your own place in the world after high school. And yet, it's such a clever self-awareness about all of these tropes and how it does it. But also, it's got that edge to it, a very postmodern take on, you know what, this doesn't work anymore, so why not just go with it? This one you should seek out. I did feel about this film, though, that the third act was somewhat unnecess- entirely unnecessary, really. I mean, the second act ended on a very resolutory note and on an ironic note, whereas it went into very strong, over-the-top, even Stephen King territory, whereas the first part was measured. You only had so many events, and the impact was much more felt when sometimes, well, less is more. I mean, we should clarify these are still horrible characters like there's nothing redeeming about them this is not that kind of movie these are horrible people but social media hey we should also just jump onto kuso because yeah i think you decided not to catch this one chris yeah look i wanted to eat as opposed to throw up and based on (laughs) what i'd heard about this movie i really wondered if it would be worth it but i'm really curious to take this full circle to where we started and hear what you guys actually thought of it it was look it tried to draw you into a world where of sensibilities that not only not exist in our world but in none of the films we have seen so far and if you can accept that i think there are some moments where the levitine humor override the very graphic and actually quite disturbing at times elements and there are times where it's the opposite and that really doesn't happen to the misfortune of the film i mean uh, it's a series of non sequiturs that happen in a post-apocalyptic universe if there is any semblance of plot that i can give to our listeners because honestly the plot does not matter it's basically a series of very gross-out scratches put together, which are sort of commenting on capitalism and where we find ourselves. But if you look at it, not really. They're not doing that much because it is so much about its own self-indulgence that after a while you kind of feel sick. And not even in a good way. It's not meant to make you feel sick about, oh my God, I've had this realization and now I feel sick. It just makes you feel sick, period. There were parts where I felt, yep, I can't look directly at the screen for this moment, but that's kind of what the festival does. It's supposed to challenge you. It's supposed to have those moments. Silly, there were moments at the found footage festival where I had to turn away. I think the other we should touch on is The Endless. The Endless is an Australian film. The two directors versus the two leads. It's about two brothers who grew up in what is termed a cult and have since returned to get some closure in a sense, but also find out what their life very much could have been like. And while it starts off as, you know, quite a direct, straightforward film, it goes into some quite ephemeral and fantastical areas. I really loved it. I think The Endless is one of those films that I saw and I would want to see again and again and again because it has some really interesting things to say about, I'm sorry to go all David Foster Wallace again, metaphysics and philosophy and concepts of time and time loops, which is really interesting. And it's the way of how that slow burn horror genre, which I think has gone out of fashion, but it's it's really present in this where it's a true slow burn. It's not a out and out horror gore, gothic sensibility, rather it's a slow burn horror, which 
we don't see that much. It takes time to introduce its concepts. It doesn't shove the MacGuffin in your face at the very beginning in order to get your attention and get traction. It's the characters and it's this not necessarily relatable but thoroughly engaging premise that gets you on board. And that's what it should be with fantasy and sci-fi as opposed to, wow, here's this gimmick that we're just going to show you and you have to see how it ends. It's much more than some revelatory aspect at the end or towards the end. It's really these characters who you're invested in. And one particularly great scene involving a rope and an exercise between the characters, which is metaphorical in some senses, but it really speaks to the sensibility of the film quite well. It does, and, and there's so much happening beyond it, and I really like the idea of using the space and setting, and I think that's what the film does really well. You are basically locked off, even as a viewer, within this sort of vastness of expanse of land where nothing is visible and you're not sure how you survive in the landscape it's basically a survivor story and yet beautiful so that was the sydney underground film festival it is sadly over but it will be back next year and so will we we'll also be back straight after this we will be talking about it but from a very different location indeed so stay tuned a whole new world close your eyes a new Fantastic point of view No one to tell us no where to go Or say we're only dreaming So we're here for another Live from the Trenches segment of Film Fight Club Yeah, we're in Hoyt's Broadway You see a film that they couldn't even think of a title So they just called it 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 It's interesting because I think the title It Is supposed to refer to to you know inexplicable horror like that that thing that we're most afraid of the movies about the concept of fear yet strangely it's not scary at all yeah this wasn't one of those movies this was yeah this was terrible like i was really excited for this i adore stephen king this said you know got a lot of good buzz the trailer had received more views on youtube in a short space time than i think almost any other if not any other and it was a fantastic trailer just to show you how well editing can work and it's not really working this film yeah yeah it's strange to see this film in the wake of Stranger Things and so many other works like It Follows, for example, that have been inspired by It, because a lot of the imagery in here no longer feels fresh. Yeah, they actually got the kid from Stranger Things. There's people might have seen this in Stranger Things and said, hey, this works really well. Let's make it get the kid from Stranger Things. And this hits every 80s beat. It had the, you have the kids in the small town. You have this nondescript villain. You have all of them teaming up, banding together to fight this foe. But it's a little bit tone deaf. It kind of jumps between the really scary, you know, things we know from Stephen King that we're familiar with. And then there's this random sequence to Antisocial where they're just throwing rocks across a stream at a bunch of a uh, bunch of bullies and yeah it just did not it didn't jar very well similar to that there's a uh, scene where the cure is played over people cleaning up and uh, confronting their fear head-on which is how I took the scene to be but suddenly this music cue sucked all of the suggestion and fear that could have been in there out, out of the scene um, essentially Tone deaf, as Glenn just put it, is the right way to describe this film. Right from the beginning, the performances are jarring in how unlike real people they seem and how over-the-top and unsubtle the writing is. I think this is one of the worst directed films I've seen from a major Hollywood studio in quite a while. Yeah, we should clarify, this is the remake of... It was a miniseries back in the 90s? In the the 80s. In the 80s, yes. So this is uh, Pennywise the Clown has inspired no end of parody uh, from The Simpsons to, to modern day. And 
from you know we were told let delete this is a film which survived on on jump scares and there are a few which work quite well but the fact is they foreshadow them you can see them coming a mile away there's one in the very first scene which does work where radio crackles at a basement and you generally are scared because you didn't know that was coming but every other one is telecast it's foreshadowed you see someone lying on the ground on the half open door you know they will be dragged away it's yeah I, I and you kind of seen a lot before and i get it is where many of it has come from where many of it has been inspired from but we saw indiana jones come back in the wake of tomb raider we saw flash gordon come in the wake of star wars and yes those things might have inspired it in turn but coming off something that and just imitating the imitator mm-hmm. doesn't always work and it really didn't work in this case i think the, um glenn is getting at the core problem of this film which is what is scary what's i think is scary is the unknown the scares here are something that we can always see coming because as glenn says they're incredibly telegraphed this movie for example works at a constant fast-paced clip as it's moving through exposition and dialogue scenes so whenever it slows down you know that a jump scare is coming because nothing else in the movie is ever slow or quiet so how can you be afraid when you're being told what to expect constantly. And going on further from that, um, this, the imagery uh, is all, you know, it's all been played out. This film has been model- modernized from the novel in that they've moved the location from the 1950s to the 1980s so that it's shifted with the time since the book was published. But it hasn't been modernized in terms of updating the imagery to things that we're not familiar with. So since we're seeing a whole lot of horror movie cliches that have been done to death, there's no fear of the unknown in it anymore. No, and when it comes to cliches, in a lot of horror movies, you look at it and say, hey, this is the time when you go to the hospital. This is the time when you go call the police. And usually there's a semi-plausible reason for doing so, or otherwise the film is so entertaining that you don't really mind or could forget about it. That is in abundance here, but it is not entertaining. It is, dist- it is absolutely abundantly distracting. But worse still, the biggest sin you can commit in the horror film, in my view by far, and it's what Crimson Peak did a couple of years ago, the, when you have a villain, what Jaws did so well, you, you tease it. You reel it out. You wait, and often until the very end, to fully show what Alien did so exceptionally well. Here, we see Pennywise from the very beginning, and we've seen all those clips in every trailer and every Mm. clip. So we know what we're facing. We know what we're facing from popular culture. Every beat here, every image, it's all... It's it's so cliched. We are so familiar with it to the point of that, yeah, complacency to a great extent throughout much of the film. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a voyage through the detritus of pop culture that we, you know, we're wading through memories. It's like false nostalgia, I would say. The nostalgia buttons are constantly being, you know, attempted to be hit, but it doesn't feel genuine because these images have lost their soul through being repeated so many times. Immediately, the design of Pennywise, you know, it looks fake. Too much, you know, CGI didn't quite work here. There's something fundamentally unscary about the way Pennywise looks and moves, but the movie could have played to its strengths by keeping that in the shadows. But instead, it's shown to us right away. So what room is there for fear? I think more so with Pennywise. Um, as, I mean, as I came out of this, the thing that came to my mind was the classic episode of The Simpsons where Homer makes the clown bed for Bart, and Bart goes, can't sleep, clown will eat me. And that wasn't trying to be scary. It was just incidentally scary. Pennywise everything. They're trying to be glaringly scary. They're trying way too hard. I don't find the clowns particularly scary myself, but something that is scary is scary 
uh, by incidence. It is scary by suggestion. And this is not. Um, every, almost every scene with Pennywise is him glaring or gnawing, or gnashing, or gnawing his mm. teeth. And it's just way too much, even for season, especially for seasoned horror fans. Yeah, exactly. This movie is relentlessly loud. It mistakes sheer force for the ability to get under your skin so it's trying to you know the camera shakes around it's trying to jolt you essentially the music it plays maximum loud noises um it that is the core of what this film thinks is scary shock but there's a difference between being afraid of something and being startled yeah, and what got me, uh, going back to your point about the nostalgia, they really tried to push it. I think it was a Wham poster at one point. Yeah, um, it's, it goes too far into the nostalgia angle, as we spoke about earlier, by using music cues for the sake of nostalgia when that wasn't the right key to be pushing at this point. No, like it really, like you could watch, you, you could, this is a bit of a halfway gap between the first two seasons of Stranger Things. I mean, whether they're riding their bicycles down the street, whether it's even the composition of the group. And whereas that series worked because you had a few finite characters and they were all quite well developed. You remember the names, you know who they all were. Here, there's just one or two too many and you get a bit of a backstory, but for some, none really. I mean, it's really, they're really single beat characters. One, um, you know, sadly lost his parents and has a terrible relationship with his grandfather. Another other um lives with his mother and that's a problematic relationship but that's all you really know about these characters it's one beat ah oh, okay we kind of recognize that cliche let's move on to the next guy and it's not really enough to endear you to anyone in the film and in being based around exploring what people are afraid of it needed to be a very character focused film and uh because the fear stems explicitly from who these people are yet as glenn's saying we don't really know who they are this would be less of a problem if what from what little we saw, they were likable. But man, what a bunch of arrogant punks. Yeah, these guys were not that great. There's one particular, uh, that, in fact, the guy from Stranger Things who was absolutely unlikable. Like, I don't particularly care what happens to you by this point. And there were also a number of bullies in the film oh, yeah. who fulfilled the typical bully role um, where Stranger Things, again, I'll use the comparison, Stranger Things worked was you had the bully figure, but he turned out to be a much more nuanced character. Here, none of that exists. There are characters you immediately had. I think they actually take that a little too far at times. Immediately, as soon as we saw, see the bullies, it's such a grotesque exaggeration of what bullies are like. And one of them is revealed to be a psychopath. So, okay. Uh, but the rest of them were all pretty, you know, even if they don't go quite as far as him, still seem to be in that position of grotesque parody of what real life is is like. And, uh, you know, that can work in a comedy. It's hard to be afraid of those people when they seem so divorced from real actual experience of being a kid and being bullied. Yeah, we've talked about on the show before how horror and comedy, and particularly in terms of character and kind of mix, how you can see some of the familiar beats, how you can see... Uh, some of the characters who are a little bit over the top or even absurdist, and this is these are people who uh, belong in a more thriller, more direct horror film where the best horror films and particularly the source material works very well with um, some quite absurd but extreme comedy interlaced, and that wasn't apparent here, sadly. Yeah, the film tries very hard for comedy with the the fast, quippy style of the way that the characters speak. But it reminded me of a movie I love to hate on, which is Juno, in that the style of dialogue is so um, so straining for wit and uh, that they seem really divorced from what actual characters of that age are like. That, you know, they speak 
with the voice of an author trying to be funny to show off how many quips they can put together. And I know teenagers are funny, but teenagers are more often funny in their awkwardness than in their dazzlingly fast displays of wit. It would be okay if maybe one character in the group was like that, but all of them are like that, and that's basically all we know them by. So they essentially merge together into one voice. They don't seem distinct as people. No, they they take a lot of pause, place a lot of emphasis here on literally your mom and dick jokes, and it's it's way too much. If they'd had, you know, again, uh, all these films, E.T., whatever, and they talk about these characters' backstories, what uh, who they are, um, some more not innocent but just simply endearing traits, and yeah, these guys didn't have many of them. Yeah, and on top of that, there's some really kind of you know, not going as far into bizarre, um, bizarrely queasy material as the book from what I've read, but there's some very uncomfortable sexual politics in terms of how the, um, the male character's relationship to the one girl in their group is depicted and um, what, the, in terms of treatment of her, the film morally seems to approve of, which... I found very weird to be watching in 2017. Yeah, I think more problematic for me from that perspective was there was a storyline involving the one female character um, separate to the storyline with boys, and I, I feel this could have been very well, I haven't read the book, being teased out much more, de- much more detail in the book or in the miniseries, but here it was dealt with very perfunctorily and uh, wrapped up very quickly. I feel that there was not enough emphasis placed on what could have been a much more consequential storyline for the overall, what is very evidently the overall theme of the story and why this particular villain, why he is terrorizing these children, how that plays into each of those individual character stories. Exactly. I think this film, you know, it's a very, it should be a very theme driven film. That seems to be what it sets out to be, but it doesn't even seem to be consistent in terms of how it treats its central theme of fear. So it's just all over the place. I found this movie to be genuinely really bad throughout it got slightly better towards the end but still seems like a pretty much a waste of my time and a waste of the time of everyone involved but i guess it's making a lot of money so what do i know it has been a great year for stephen king adaptations has it no, no with dark tower but there's another one a tv adaptation maybe seek that one out it is in cinemas now we will be back yeah don't see it do 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 do